One day I was walking down the street on New York's Lower East Side. I happened to get stuck behind a very long, elaborate funeral procession. I went over to a Jewish man, you know, a, a man with a long beardel. I said to him, tell me, who died? He said, the gentleman in the first car. I've owned these old LP records for years. They take me back to a golden age of Jewish comedy. What's interesting about these ones are the fact that they're peppered with Yiddish words and expressions, many of which were lost on me. But it didn't matter, they always made me laugh. She'll say, as zhuzhet mir in Lincoln ever. As burchet mir in Boyer. And I myself don't feel so good either. I've always thought there's a bittersweet flavour to Jewish humour. In the bleakest of times, there's always been laughter. A coping mechanism, perhaps, or a kind of defiance. For this episode of Sounds Jewish, I'll be exploring the stories of Jewish people who have that gift to make us laugh. Not just the professional entertainers, but ordinary people whose home life is rich in great storytelling and funny characters. When I was growing up, one thing that was true of my family, and probably most Jewish families, was the volume of noise and charged emotions around the dinner table. Plenty of shouting, interrupting, talking over each other and bickering. But with laughter never far behind. All these things were, and to some extent still are, the core of Jewish family life. Writer and performer Nick Kassenbaum says he learnt the craft of making people laugh from the age of five. It was around the Friday night dinner table at his grandma's house in Essex, where family and friends would trade in the language and banter honed in the street markets of East London. And there were the dirty jokes too. I've always been a performer. From a very young age, I was always on the lookout for a way to make people laugh and have a wind-up. Now, Nicholas, can you stop jumping now? I recently found old footage my dad had filmed. I'm going to be a bear. Oh, you be a bear then. I was an extrovert seeking an audience. <laughs> now I am older, my bread and butter is street theatre. There is nothing I love more than performing in public spaces like a shopping centre or a high street to a crowd of people who have no idea they are about to watch a show. My world is all about the quick gag, the back and forth with the audience and engaging even the most miserable passerby. When people ask me how I got into street theatre, I always credit my Nana Sylvie with giving me a taste for laughter and a good joke. It's ten years ago this month that she died, and I've been thinking recently just how much she influenced me. They used to do the liver, I told you about the I mean, if my dad was upset. You baby. Friday night dinners at her house in Woodford, Essex, were full of life. Everyone in the family was welcome, and they always knew they could pop in at a moment's notice for a bowl of soup, a chicken leg and a good shtick. The moment my nana Sylvie wheeled in the trolley chocked full of grub, that was when the show would begin. Everyone had their own role. 
my nana told the dirty jokes, they were absolutely filthy, normally involving four-letter words that no five-year-old should hear, and a lot of talk about sex that went straight over my head. My great auntie Linda, she was the wind-up. She'd pick on people around the table, taking the piss and hoping to get a reaction, which she always did. And my great auntie Viv was the practical joker, blacking out her teeth with after eight rappers or using the chicken carcass as a ventriloquist puppet. And then there was me, sitting amongst these sedrators, these nutters, sucking it all up like the roast potato soaking in the gravy on my plate. And what did these noisy women, my nana and her sisters, all have in common? As teenagers, they worked the East London markets and beyond with their dad, Charlie Delroy, who I'm pretty sure was the first non-kosher Jewish butcher in London. This was the 1960s, and in those days you could make a good living from schlapping around the markets with a van full of meat and a loud voice. Don't be shy, dear. Come on, help yourself, dear. Come on. When I went round with my mum to my auntie Viv's for a spread of bygles the other day, my great aunts Viv and Linda remembered just how much of a showman Papa Charlie was. It was the family business with everyone pulling their weight, mucking in and getting involved with selling the meat. I'd have to get on the, on the van and serve. I'd be cutting up the liver and, uh, and he'd go off to the pub. Then your father came along, your grandfather came along, and he became, he used to pitch. Well, it was hilarious, because after he's finished his pitch, he'd come down and take a pig's eye out, right? So you can imagine what a pig's eye is like this, with a big, big white, uh, big thing like this. And everyone wore duffel coats in those days. You know what a duffel coat yeah. is, don't you? With a hood. With a hood. So it'd, it'd, come, it'd come off the, <laughs> the table board, and you go, hello, how are you? <laughs> Round the shoulder like that, so everyone walks along with a pig's eye on it. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> ah, he says, I'll see you soon and keep my eye up. <laughs> <laughs> see you soon and keep my eye out for you. <laughs> we used to wet ourselves, Alan and me, didn't we, Dave? I remember being at Dartford. Dartford Mark, that was a Thursday. That's the Thursday. Long after Papa Charlie died and the family left the meat business, I came along. I remember from a very young age being forced to stand in front of my nana and her mates reciting the filthy jokes. I often wonder why I was the only grandchild she chose to pass on these jokes. My sister and my cousins were never given this treatment. I like to think she saw something in me. A love of performance and a gift of the gab. Either that or she wanted cheap entertainment for her and her mates, at my expense. She goes, hold on a minute. What, you've sent all them to the door to your right? Well, you sent me to the door to your left first. The man at the gate says, well, you don't want your hair done first. (laughs) 
I grew up watching reruns of Sergeant Bilko with my dad. What was that score we lost by? I couldn't keep up with it. 68 to nothing. 68 to nothing. You'd think they'd at least give us one point for showing up. <laughs> what was wrong with you guys? It was the backdrop to my youth. We used to laugh out loud at Bilko's quick-wittedness and his constant madcap schemes to earn a few extra dollars for himself and his company. We had money on this game! <laughs> Phil Silvers, the Brooklyn-born Jewish actor, was a huge star in the UK, and Sergeant Bilko is still a television legend, nearly 60 years on from its first broadcast. I just think of Phil Silvers with his black-rimmed glasses and his cheeky grin, and he still makes me laugh. But what must it have been like to be part of the Silvers family? Well, Tracy Silvers is the oldest of his five daughters. And thanks to the British Phil Silvers Appreciation Society, we've set up a transatlantic conversation. When did you realise that Phil Silvers was Sergeant Bill? Was famous? Was famous. Um, As a child... It's odd, as a little child, it's odd to see your dad standing next to you and your father on television in a, in a sergeant outfit. That's an odd kind of a phenomenon, as a little child. But quickly, I began to recognize that my father was famous because it's hard to leave the house without someone approaching him. So I knew that people recognized him, people knew who he was, um, but it wasn't until much later in my life that I used to say to people when they would ask me this question um, about being with Phil Silvers, I used to say, well, I live at home with my dad, but I go out with Phil Silvers. And I think that's a fascinating point. And may I ask you, Tracy, who was your father at home? Can you just describe him? Well, I mean, again, he was very funny all the time. But I, I will say one thing to you, and I think it might kind of encapsulate the person that he was. He told me, honey, to be very funny, you have to be very serious about it. And I think that we see with a lot of comedians, including my father, and it's in different degrees, the, so, the so-called dark side of comedy because it's very hard to be on and funny all the time. So you see someone like with Robin Williams or with Jim Carrey, you know, these kind of comedians that are on and hysterical, and you're thinking, oh my God, it must be so much fun to live with that person at home. But there is a balancing act to living like that. And fortunately, my father, by the time I was born, because it was much later in his life, he had learned to kind of stabilize that balancing act. But at home, he was, you know, oftentimes very quiet, very introspective. He loved reading. He loved, 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 loved sports. So if there was a game on, it was on. So I got a feeling of my father being very funny, very introspective, and watching a lot of sports. <laughs> that was my childhood. Who are you? Uh, Sergeant Bilko. I'm Sergeant Bilko. Who are you? Uh, Honigan. Ed, Ed Honigan. I've been transferred to your motor pool platoon from Camp Dixon. I'm a uh, mechanic, uh, specialist rating. Camp Dixon, huh? 
Got some pretty good teams up there, huh, pal? What do you do? Uh, I've worked on half tracks, engine and body. I've done a Listen, little... Listen, uh, play any football? Football? You play any football? No. Oh, saving yourself a basketball, huh? Oh, I've Big done a lot of valve and piston repair, transmission. How uh, about uh, baseball, a little baseball? Huh? No. Soccer? I... Tracy, could you imagine the very young Phil Silvers um, and why he wanted to become a comedian. When you're with someone as brilliant as my father, you recognize he was born this way. I mean, I'll I'll tell you a great story. When he was in kindergarten, he was five years old, and they were doing the Thanksgiving play, and the kindergartners were allowed to stand in the background if they had a costume. So his mom made him a costume, the whole Thanksgiving kind of pilgrim costume. I know this is American, but uh, I think you're familiar with that kind of costume. And so his mother made him a costume, and he was standing in the back, and the play was going on, and suddenly in the middle of the play, he goes, Look, the Indians are here! Oh, they got me! And he fell down. And people were horrified. <laughs> they were like, what, in the what did this child just do? So I, I think he knew early on that he loved the audience, he loved the reaction, he fed off the reaction, because it was in sixth grade that he left school and went to start working in uh, burlesque. But he did not start out as a comedian. He started out as a singer. Um, how old is a sixth uh, grade? Five, uh, 11, 12? 12 years right. old. Uh, did he ha- was he from Mitzvah? Yes, yes, oh yes, I have the picture, I have the picture somewhere. Yes, he was bar mitzvah. He was, that was very important to him. So Phil Silvers was working before he had his bar mitzvah. Yes, yes. He was, he was, he was in an act and he was singing. Sacha Bilko! What is it, what, what? Let her ready for roll call. All right, roll call, all right, look at that. I don't before me. Hey, you better, you better, all right. Better. Can't you guys stand a little cold? All right, roll call. Anderson. You. Doberman. You. Filippowitz. You. Wait a minute. You're all here, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. All present and accounted for. <laughs> this is murder. It's funny. Maybe this is a survival test nobody told us. Huh? Hey, Sarge, this is murder. Isn't there anything we can do? Yeah. There's something you can do. You can start showing a little cooperation around here. Look at this. Empty. That's all we're going to take turns going out of the coal bin and filling the bucket. Sarge. No excuses. Who's the slacker? Point him out to me. Who's the man who thinks so little of his buddies? Sarge, it's your turn. (laughs) Which brings me to the subject of coal conservation. They would write the scripts. They would hand them out to everyone. And in the script, it would say Sergeant Bilko. And then underneath, the writers would write, say something funny here. That they wouldn't even write in dialogue for my father because they knew that at that moment he would say something funnier than they would be able to write. For you, watching Sergeant Bilko, um, does mm-hmm. that, you know, can you help but not laugh? Oh, no. Uh, no, I mean, I laugh watching it now. <laughs> because I'll know what my father was thinking. I'll know when he shoots somebody a look what, it, what was in his mind. And, you know, I mean, so I have kind of a... A different kind of a point of view but uh, no I think it's funny today I think it's brilliant today but I think that's why in your opening statements you said you know people remember remember your father 60 years later because that humor will transcend time but it was 
truly hysterically funny. And something that is truly hysterically funny lasts. <laughs> Sir, there's a rooster on the post. <laughs> Sir, I know how the colonel doesn't like life. I'll get a detail and find him, Sir. Stop looking, Bilko. That was no rooster. That was I. Well, you, sir? Oh, the colonel is surely pulling my leg. Oh, sir, really, the human voice couldn't capture the sound, that authentic sound that I just heard of the king of the hen house arrogance, sir. Really, sir, that is amazing, sir. Well, I've met my match, sir. I've done my last cock-a-doodle-doo. Oh. <laughs> now, don't take it that way, Bill Cole. That was a nice cock-a-doodle-doo. London, Stamford Hill, the largest ultra-Orthodox community in Europe. It's a place I normally associate with a serious study of the Talmud. But it has its funny men too. They're known as the Badchen. I'd heard about this figure, a character who has been part of Jewish folklore for hundreds of years. That's all I knew. I've been told they're a rare breed now, but well known to all in the Hasidic community. My inquiries all led me to one person, Yisrael Stern, the most famous Badchen around. I've been ushered into his front room, where Yisrael is preparing for his next big performance. Sitting with me at the table, Yisrael and his wife proudly show me a series of photographs from one of his largest events of recent years, in Jerusalem, at the wedding of the granddaughter of one of the great Hasidic rabbis. I mean, you can, you can see here, you can just start imagining the scope of things. I didn't even quite comprehend the scale you were talking about and looking at these photographs. What a congregation of people. That is just amazing. What a gathering. Yeah. And they've come from all over, haven't they? All over the world. And then I've got to get up there and perform. And the rabbi is a very, very particular person. If he says you've got an hour, then if you've got 60 minutes, you haven't got 61. You've got to work exactly. And it's intense pressure, immense pressure. You've got to change your, change your game there and then. Otherwise, you're in trouble. It's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Oh, yeah. People ask me, how do you do it? You have to be born a Badkham. And the proof is, you've never seen a Badkham that hasn't been born. All of them have been born. <laughs> So, no, you can't, you can't learn these things at all. Impossible. It's all you have it or you ain't. What is a badkhan? Can you describe what makes a good badkhan? Literal translation of the word badkhan is someone who makes people laugh. Bedicha is the Hebrew word for a joke, for laughing. Now, there's a very fine line which one may not cross between laughing, happiness and mockery. Mockery is never allowed. Tradition has it, Hasidic tradition has it. Yes. If the bride and the groom laugh on the night of the wedding, they'll be happy till 120 years plus. So that's why it is a mitzvah, a commandment, 
to make them happy on the day of their wedding. When you were married, was there a balchan? Friend of my father-in-law, I think the whole thing took about 15 minutes. I didn't understand a word. I think neither did he. He was reading from a paper, I'm not sure it was the right paper. Shalom, Sani Ketsoinoi. The Feld gets overgeregt. He said, No! As I said, Shalom, Sani Ketsoinoi. Then, No! There, Shalom, Sani Ketsoinoi. And then he said, No! Shalom, Sani Ketsoinoi. And then he said, Nowadays, people expect something, something better, something deeper. They like to hear, shall we say, a parable, a story, a thought, a Hasidic thought. So it's hard work. You've got to get them across to your side in the first three minutes. Otherwise, you've had it. I've got to ask you. You've got to have them eating out of your hand in the first few minutes. Absolutely. And what do you do to do that? Can I ask you, if you don't mind telling me your, sort of your trade secrets? Just... No secrets. You can try it yourself. See, Hamata Ose, Zeig auf der Schlange. And it's so interesting that so much of your performance is late at night or early in the morning. My wife says that's why they laugh at those stupid jokes, because they're tired. In midday, they wouldn't even laugh. And yet, Herschel, the next breeder. Ah, You need a lot of stamina. Because you're at the service. You're, 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 you're there throughout the day. And then all of a sudden, knowing that your, your big moment isn't in two hours, three hours' time, it could be seven, eight hours' time. Yeah. In Taker, when I started off, there was maybe two weddings in Stamford Hill a week. Now, there's an average of two or three weddings a night. All halls are taken. One person can't cope. It's impossible. I can be at one place and I, that's it. Yeah. And what about the other two? The, there's, a, there's a big demand. There's a big, big demand. And, and I wish it would be filled. And I'm always willing to help anybody who wants to. But then again, I say, you have to have it. Some of these guys, I get so, so frustrated. So even if you tell them something good, it just goes way over them, way, way above them. The thing is, I'm, I'm listening to you talking, you know, hearing what you've got to say, and you've got a glint in your eye, you know. As you're talking, you've got a smile on your face. Well, you yeah, know, it, it's obviously something that means a lot to you as well. It's not just a job. It's not something, you know, this is something, this is a, a way of life. Oh, yeah, certainly. It's got its perks, I'm not saying. But um, more, more than its perks... Thank God I've been in very, in very special situations. I've performed in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. To be a veteran to wedding is, is, a, is a holy job. Is, is considered a loftly and holy job. It's got nothing to do with theatre or humour as such. Even Jackie Mason's style of thing, it's totally different. It's to- totally opposed to that. So when you hear... But, sorry for interrupting, I must point out that in my career, I've, I've come into crowds that are not the traditional market for, for a Batkan. There's a gentleman in northwest London, when he married off his... Some Prime Minister John Major was present 
and he really enjoyed himself. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't. Man, wouldn't you think he would understand what I'm talking about? But it, but he did. So it, it seems to me they're not all stupid. The politicians, some of them understand something. But um, he came up to me. He said, he said thank you. He said, you know what? I think I'll hire you for the, hire you for the next PM uh, Prime Minister's Question Times. <laughs> I said, you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I hope you enjoyed it, or perhaps you've just been polite enough to laugh. <laughs> Polly's Tea Rooms, opposite Hampstead Heath Station, North London. For years, it's been the favourite hangout for the Scottish comedian Arnold Brown. This kind of place is a long way from his roots, as a working-class Jewish lad born in 1936 and growing up in the South Glasgow tenements. Yeah. Which part of Glasgow was his region? It was the South Side. Yeah, South Side. Actually, I always felt that uh, Glasgow was a confining thing. It was a too narrow world. But I was uneducated. I didn't receive a very good education. Arnold was drawn to Hampstead in the mid-60s, when it was a heartland of intellectual and bohemian life. Back then, Arnold was actually an accountant, but with a taste for something a little less conventional. And I, I just want... How good an accountant were you? Not very good, no. I, I, uh, my, my, I was, was more interested in words, but I drift into accountancy like other people drift into crime, you know. Unfortunately, I'm mixed with the right people. Fast forward to the early 1980s, and Arnold, still the accountant, was performing at late-night comedy clubs, becoming a central figure in the burgeoning alternative comedy scene with his dry, absurdist humour. I went back to my hometown of Glasgow the other week and a man rushed up to me in the street, put his face right up to my face and said, are you looking at me, Jimmy? (laughs) I backed away. You would have done so too. Then another man rushed up to me and he said, have you got a meat pie on you, Jimmy? I had a quick body search. You never know. He was out of luck. It was a Tuesday. <laughs> then I went into a lamppost. A trip to Polly's always includes a walk onto the heath. Arnold never knows what might inspire him for his next show, but he's still conjuring up memories of his childhood. In Glasgow, uh, in the front room on the mantelpiece, there was no photographs of ourselves, but uh, only of the royal family. For years, I actually assumed. I was seventh in line to the throne. <laughs> <laughs> I met him once, and uh, he, he came to the comic strip, and we talked... As I strolled and listened to Arnold's stories, I found myself entering his slightly surreal view of the world. But, yeah, they're listening. <laughs> Can you get... And we're all caught up This in. is uh, very important. Uh, talking about jokes, laughter. Oh, dear. What are you uh, we laughed today? For? Very much so, thanks. What are you smiling about? You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You is and it, your it, funny bumbling way. You know you're part of N.W. Twee. Do you understand that? This is N.W. Twee. <laughs> the 
which it has always been the NW2. But I'm glad you outwitted us because we think it's so funny, but we're, we're so uncool compared oh, to the two. I haven't really noticed any, any jokes yet. I was waiting. <laughs> no, I was. Isn't it like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Only in, only in Hampstead. Okay. Such a An unexpected encounter with the police has turned into a rather bizarre Arnold Brown comedy sketch. I've just noticed we're being followed by a white van at the constabulary, the policing Hampstead Heath. Hi, how are you? Very good. I noticed you, are you following us? Talking about the roots of comedy. Just having a natter about where laughter comes from. Just a sense of... We were just talking about the family. Does it come from family? Yes. You know, how... Maybe when we're talking, is it parents growing up, childhood? Okay. Mm. Yourself? The only, only reason why we've come over to chat with you is um, we were called over by um, one of the park rangers who oh, yeah. thought that uh, some sort of random men- member of the public being interviewed. We wanted to establish exactly what was going on. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, right. We're you just... know in Hampstead, actually, philosophers are helping... You, the police, with their inquiries. I wouldn't be surprised, sir. Actually, your face reminds me of Albert Einstein, without the beard. Perhaps, sir. Perhaps. Can I have your identification, please? My identification? Uh, I just wondered whether this is a cover for... A conspiracy. You never know, sir. You never know. Could you accompany me to the station, please? Hampstead Heath. Um, well, uh, on the overground. I'll tell you what, sir. I'll take your uh, word for it that there's no conspiracies going on here. There's no conspiracy. I'm glad Thank to hear you. of it. I'm very glad that you took part in this. Um, your fee will be in the post. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoy your walk. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you what, are you a... Have got a card? Are you a regular user of the heat? Yeah. That's all for this edition of Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Tracy Silvers, Nick Kassenbaum, Arnold Brown, Yisrael Stern, and to our sponsors, JW3. This episode of Sounds Jewish was presented by me, Alan Dean, and produced by Sarah Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>